I could do with my words what I could never do with a sword because I probably cut off my own foot and no one needs that, least yeah. of all me. So, I think that's a lot yeah. of us and probably a lot of our listeners too. Like we are not an athletic group of people. <laughs> I'm aware of that. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to that pretentious book club. Mm-hmm. You're in the right place if you meant to click on that pretentious <laughs> book club. club. Once again, if you didn't mean to click on that pretentious book club, you're still in the right place. Welcome. <laughs> so Fate true, has brought bestie. you to us. <laughs> yes. Welcome. That over there is Kendall Shaw, a.k.a. Dr. Spoons Palermo. Hello. <laughs> and over there, we got Ash O'Rourke or Wheezy. Guess what? It ain't easy being wheezy. <laughs> I can't stop thinking about it. <laughs> ah, so good. If you listen to our, our Darkest Minds episode, you will get that reference. Um, I but really have to is... credit my friend Hannah for that. Hannah, I... if you're listening, say... sometimes you listen, I think. Yeah, about... Hannah. Thank you for that. Hannah, I have a request. Can I make that my new catchphrase? Can I please? Or maybe Sarah said it. Because I Sorry. don't. Or Sarah. Listen, now I can't remember. I, I have to go know. back to the Twitter thing. Listen, whoever said it. Can I have permission to make that my new intro line? Because Dr. Spoons here has hi and sometimes howdy. I have nothing because we took away Weez into the microphone. Yeah, it was not going to happen anymore. Weez into the microphone was a terrible. It was never good, but it just kept happening. And then it stopped. And so now I'm like, yep, that's me. Yeah. (laughs) But I would love to get to say it's not easy being Weezy. See, I like it so much. <laughs> oh, God, it's amazing. Wait, did I actually say hi and sometimes howdy, or do I just sometimes say hi and sometimes I say howdy? You have, you have on different occasions gone, hi, and other times, howdy. And once you said, hi, howdy. And oh, I yeah, like, yeah. That is That's what I was thinking of. Ultimate. <laughs> See, I need to bring that back to be more consistent. I think so. Okay, this is our new thing. We're going to be consistent? Tell me if you don't want me to do... It's not easy being wheezy. No, I love it. Because <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> we we had decided we were going to start this episode with a call to arms. <laughs> oh, yes. If any of you guys know how to, like, do anything on the computer, can somebody <laughs> please make, like, a trap remix of our theme and song? Do, 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 do. <laughs> <laughs> And like some like boom, like yeah. sick drop. God, yeah, it'd be so be funny. It could be our new intro song if you do it. I'm just saying. If anybody has the connection, please. If anyone like, has the connection. Oh my God. Um, And so this episode is coming out. Uh, we are recording like two weeks in advance. So I think this is coming out. I think Thanksgiving is this week, you guys. So happy early Thanksgiving. <gasps> happy Thanksgiving. Um, to celebrate, if you have not already, you should go check out our fall merch. It is limited edition. It is limited time. It's not going to be there forever. Come December, it's all coming down. But we have some excellent always falling for the villain merch yes. on uh, thatpretentiousbookclub.com. So go check it out. Some of it is even on sale right now. Some of our other stuff is on sale. So um, Christmas gifts, anyone for book lovers? Absolutely. Indeed. I want to give myself the gift of all of it. <laughs> like, <laughs> I want everything on the store for myself. Um, but the fall stuff is really great. And credits to Madison Hall, yes, our, my sister you, and designer Maddie. who made it. 
and we will be having a Christmas design come out soon. So I'm pumped. So exciting. Who else has started listening to Christmas music? Because I haven't done it yet because it's still the beginning of November. <laughs> who else? And you hadn't even done it. <laughs> because I know, but by the time this episode oh, comes out, I will be well into gotcha. listening to Christmas music. And I don't care what all you haters have to say about it. <laughs> There's already so much aggression on social media about stop listening to Christmas music. It is not Christmas time yet. And I'm like, listen. What do you have against happiness? Okay. <laughs> I guess, I don't know. All the circles I've been running in online, they've been like, my tree is up. It has been since really? Halloween. Wow. Yeah. You have such a nicer circle, I guess. My <laughs> social media circle, I guess whatever I'm seeing, it's only people being like, shut up about Christmas. And I'm like, Christmas is the best thing in the whole world, you dumb dumb. <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> Their hearts are going to go grow like three sizes or whatever. Only as, as of December 1st. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not until then. <laughs> it's a time bomb. <laughs> Anyways, this episode is super exciting. In this episode, we got to interview the author of um, Sword of the Seven Sins, Emily Collin. You may also know her as the New York Times bestselling author of The Memory Thief and The Dreamkeeper's Daughter um, and more. So yes. exciting stuff. I loved this book. I liked it so much, and it was great talking to her. I mean, guys, I like, I geek out whenever I get to meet an author. Uh, I am such a fan of meeting authors. It is crazy to me that we just interviewed, like, a best-selling author I know, on this podcast. I know. I, I don't usually geek out, but I literally, right before I hit record, was like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, all my breath left my lungs, and I was like, is this what it feels like to feel, like, flustered about, like, meeting somebody super cool? And she was super cool. She was cool. Yeah, y'all are going to love her. You guys, her. she's so eloquent. I was like, she should run our podcast, honestly. I know. I was like, damn, I don't know what I'm saying. She speaks so well. And I was like, words and questions for you. <laughs> yes, and I am having a word. <laughs> I'm having a question for you, writer of books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. So sorry if I sound like an idiot coming yeah, up. Me but as well. But listen, in comparison to Emily Collin, we it's were true. We all to. sound like idiots. Yeah. Um, God, I love this book. We're going to talk about the book. And Emily tells you about her stuff, so her own life and her experiences. We got to learn about her writing process. Yeah. Um, it's so exciting. So that's, um, if you listen to our last author interview episode, you'll know that these episodes go a little bit differently for us because instead of doing like our really big um, introduction with like a full on long summary and our big review at the end, instead, we're just going to give you guys a really, really fast breakdown of the book so you have some context. And yes, spoiler warnings, we will be giving spoilers. Yeah, spoilers um, as always. Again, unless you're brand new, <laughs> that's not a surprise. <laughs> um, and so then we can just dive into the interview with Emily. Uh, so this is a little bit of a different episode, but oh my God, it was so much fun. Yeah, y'all are going to love it. <laughs> so right. should we get into that summary? Let's do it. Just do it. <laughs> that pretentious summary. Let's, here's that pretentious summary on Sword of Seven Sins. Okay, so we start out with Eva, right? Eva... So maybe I should start out with the setting. Oh, the so, setting. Do you want to do the setting? So, well, Eva, our main character, lives in the Commonwealth of Ashes. And there are different mm-hmm. commonwealths. Basically, this is sort of a post-apocalyptic sort of dystopian society. Yeah. And a, this is a dystopian romance. It is, and, indeed. Oh with some fantasy elements. Mm-hmm. Yes, and indeed. so she lives in, like, the biggest commonwealth basically this is 
I mean, was I wrong in saying they're like the Puritans? I no, I knew they you are. were going to bring up the Puritans again too. The damn Puritans are it's back. It's basically it, the Puritans. <laughs> the Puritans are back. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! And they so base yeah. It sucks here. It's basically like a theocracy, mm-hmm. and they kind of. It had a little bit of like divergent society vibes at the beginning uh, to me with like the choosing with, like and the stuff. choosing and like the different everyone like there's like a few different categories that you can like you know belong to basically like that your job can be yeah 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 or city of ember vibes give me city of yes. ember oh god i love city of ember oh me too wait we should do city of ember I'm so down. okay great oh so <laughs> it's basically a society in which there's all these freaking rules it's mm-hmm. like a theocracy everybody worships the architect yes the architect. and there's like an executor he's in charge of everybody mm-hmm. and there's like this group of basically like the military and mm-hmm. the bellators the bellators right from the start our main character eva it starts when she's younger this society is super harsh if you commit any of the sins you know the seven sins yeah the seven deadly sins you basically get killed yeah. like you get killed oh for anything around here yeah for um real. and so and the, we open up with a thief basically getting executed. Yes. And our main girl, Eva, has she's always... She's like 10 or something. Yeah. She's like a little girl. It's not great. No. And she, but she always finds ways to like rebel in like a really tiny way. Like she always... Like she rebels, but within like just just less than she would if she was going to get in trouble for it, yes. basically. So yeah. she kind of isn't stoked about this guy getting killed. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> And so she, she she's basically, not quite stoked yeah. about it. I don't know. And the executor picks her out as mm-hmm. being not stoked and is like, okay, well, now you get. Basically, she ends up giving the orders for yeah. this guy to be killed. Yep. And she makes eye contact with this cute boy who's a little bit older than her across the square. And they both have vibes like, we hate this. Yes. And so his name is Ari. We God, okay, I, I'm in love with Ari. <laughs> Ari is. As we will discover, your type. Um, Ari is my type because Ari is essentially my husband for a character in a book. Yes. They... I'll talk about it more. You guys will be like, Ash, stop it. I hate it when you do this. <laughs> Did you guys know she's married? She I... loves her husband. <laughs> I do talk about him a lot. No, it's cute. I do love him. Okay, sorry. Continue. Um, so, that was so cute. Um, so, yes. So then we flash forward. Our girl Eva is still not vibing all the time, but Mm-mm. she's, you know, doing her best in this society. Yeah. Uh, her choosing day is coming up, so that's when she gets to basically, like, do her job that she's going to do forever. Mm-hmm. And she is really good at, like, coding and, like, code breaking and stuff, so she yeah. thinks she's going to go do that. Yeah. Um, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, basically it doesn't happen. I'm skipping some stuff, but we're just going to do the basic plot. Yeah. So she gets ends up... Gets inducted into the Bellators, the Bellators. which are, like... The police force, essentially. So yes. they, they carry out all the executors, um, like all of his commands and stuff. So they're the ones who do the killing and do the disciplining yep. and the punishments. Um, and so she's like, well, this is my literal nightmare. <laughs> yeah. This is exactly what I have the biggest problem with in society. And now I'm a member of it. But um, her mentor is Ari. Uh-huh. And oh, my God, the tension. The tension. Because guess what? Ari's been in love with her for like seven years. And, and- she's like... Stop having feelings for me. It's oh, no, inconvenient. But then she's like, I, I also have feelings for you. But no. Yeah. <laughs> she has a lot of emotional regulation. Because in this society, there there is no Guys, love. There's, there's no, no marriage. There's no sex. There's no anything. Mm-hmm. They basically, everybody's a test tube baby. Everyone's a test tube Which is tube crazy. Baby. And so. That the, blows, I'm like, that is so much effort to go. It, it really is. <laughs> 
See, I love star-crossed lovers, mm-hmm. one of my favorite tropes in the whole world. I know. And uh, so I was digging this because basically if they make out, they die. Mm-hmm. But boy, do they make out anyway. Boy, they and do. Boy, yeah. do they. And so meanwhile, but also there's some weird stuff going on with Eva. She's like really fast, really strong. Yeah, she she's like know what's this going tiny on. woman who's like shouldn't reasonably in any way like be as strong as these like full-grown Bellator <laughs> men yeah. who've been training for like their whole lives. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she's just like kicking ass and it's she amazing. totally is. God, she's my hero. <laughs> Basically, we find out that there is like a resistance group mm-hmm. that lives outside of the um, Commonwealth and Ari and Eva get involved because turns out Ari's parents, that's right, he was not a test tube baby. He Ari's, was a natural born and natural borns are looked down upon. Yes. They go out and try to like meet his parents and figure out what's going on with the resistance. But then everything goes to shit and it gets blown up. And then Eva figures out that they've been tracking her. And so it's basically her fault that all this happened. Yep. So then she pretends to betray Ari. So that Ari can escape. Yes. Yep. And so then he's like, oh, my God, Eva hates me. And he goes back to like outside the Commonwealth. I know. Freaking Ari. And Eva basically gets tortured for information back Mm -hmm. with the uh, Bellators. Yeah. Then Ari figures out the truth, comes to mm-hmm. save her. We also find out that she's this like big like genetic experiment. Oh right, yeah. that whole thing, that whole that little like, chestnut, <laughs> that little chestnut. The executor's like, "You are my favorite lab rat. You are so good at being what we made you to be." Yes, <laughs> so, she's basically a mutant. Yeah, she's essentially a mutant, which is just I love that. Pretty badass. God, I love that. Yeah. So yeah, that is one of my favorite tropes. I feel like mutants. it doesn't happen enough. Mutants, <laughs> like a like a, it's almost like the chosen one thing, but it's not quite because she was like what like the twelfth or thirteenth try. Yeah, but it's just God, I love it. Like um, X Men Evolution. Anyone? The old cartoon. <laughs> anyone? 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 X Men Evolution. X Men Evolution. What is it? The um, I can't remember her character's name, but she's like basically like a girl Wolverine, and essentially yeah, her know. backstory. I've never been that into X-Men. Well, her backstory is kind of like that from what I remember from like from the cartoon series. Mm. And I was just like, I am engaged. I am so <laughs> into this story. <laughs> You're like, I am perceiving it. <laughs> I, am, I am perceiving and I am supporting it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, sorry. Yeah. So she's like super killer and strong. Then what's his name? One of Ari's friends, basically, he like he goes and secretly interrogates Eva because he's one of the Bellators, but the Bellators don't know that he's part of the resistance and then he finds out oh my god Eva's Eva was like she's telling me the truth she's like she did everything she did just to try to get Ari out she wasn't like a double agent yeah so he goes and tells Ari and Ari's like oh my god Eva I have to go get her (laughs) oh my god love my life and he does he does badass he gets her and there's a cool chase scene and they manage to escape Mm -hmm. and they basically escape out back into the like outside the commonwealth yep and who knows what's gonna happen next there's a book too that we haven't read god and then the the third book to end this trilogy is coming out in summer 2022 yes that's on the horizon and so exciting yeah we're looking forward to that and there's also emily will tell us there's some short stories and stuff like that so yeah it's kind of a whole seven sins universe Universe. happening oh oh my god you guys should go check it out yeah Oh, some CD so makeout sessions, some guys, cool action scenes. This is like some the fun perfect, world building. So much snark. This is like such like a all of Ash's guilty pleasures in like one book. This is a very Ash book. Yeah. You know, it's lots of snark, lots of action, some romance. And of course, the Ari character who I'm just like, I absolutely love you. <laughs> <laughs> all right. You guys got it. You've got it. OK, here we go. 
<laughs> Three, two, one, go! <laughs> Hi, everybody. Welcome back to that pretentious book club. Welcome. I'm, I'm Kendall. <laughs> That's Ash. And today we have a very special guest. She is the New York Times bestselling author of The Memory Thief, and we read her book, Sword of the Seven Sins, and it is Emily Collin. Hello, Yes, welcome. She's Yeah, she's here with us remotely, and it is so exciting. We're so glad she could be here. We've already had some really fun chats. We're super excited for this episode. Been looking forward to it. Do you want to just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and kind of sure hi thank you so much for having me i'm really excited this is going to be so much fun um yeah so i'm emily i grew up in brooklyn new york now i live in coastal north carolina quite the switch um i have been writing since i was very 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 small um with a brief hiatus for various reasons and then back at it again um so I have worked in small press publishing as an editor. I've worked for magazines as a writer and editor. Um, I worked a lot in the community arts education world, um, specifically um, bringing arts education to youth in need, which is a really meaningful um, part of my life. And then um, in my 30s, decided that it was time to see if I could write a book. And I thought I'm gonna sink or swim. I'm gonna try and do this. And either it'll work or it won't. It was really scary, um, but I did it. And that first book was um, The Memory Thief that you mentioned. And so I kind of have two paths that I write on. Um, one is my adult romance and women's fiction path and The Memory Thief and The Dreamkeeper's Daughter are part of that path. And then I love young adult fiction too. I, I love it because I feel like I'm drawn to extremes in writing of all kinds. Like the memory thief is about a mountain climber who dies and possesses somebody else to claw his way back to life and keep his promise to his wife. You know, you don't get much more extreme than all of that. And what I love about YA fiction <laughs> is that like the characters are going through things for the first time in, you know, first love, first kiss, sometimes first major loss, major life decisions, separating from family. Everything that they're experiencing is that much more intense because it is happening for the first time. And so you don't have to manufacture intensity or excitement, it's just there. And in this case, when you add like a romantic dystopian with a strong fantasy element, which is what my Seven Sins series is, then you get to do all this amazing world building and invention and high stakes, which ups the tension so much more. So um, that is my um, Young Adult series is the Seven Sins series. It's a trilogy with the third one coming out next summer. And then I also, yeah, I, yeah I've also got a um, <laughs> novella, which is free, that's in that collection, and a short story collection, um, Shadows of the Seven Sins. So there's a whole world. Yeah. Oh, so fun. that's me. And I, like I said, I live here in coastal North Carolina um, with... Um, a dog who thinks he's a cat, a cat who thinks he's a dog, my partner, and my kid. And here I am. Oh. <laughs> we love it. Wait, and is your dog named Moo? Did I read that on your website? That is so funny. I love that. That's amazing. Yeah, it's because when I adopted him, like I was looking at the pictures on the website and I saw his little puppy face and I was like, oh, he's such a little Moo. And then it just stuck. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love that. That That's is so, so sweet. cute. What kind of dog is he? Um, well, he's a mutt. So he's, um, so... I adopted him and they told me that he was a lab Doberman mix. And I was like, that's mm -hmm. interesting. And then I got him home and I was like walking him and people would stop me on the street and they were like, 
I love your Great Dane puppy. And I was like, oh, heck no. Tell me I do not have a Great Dane puppy. This is so not okay. So then I decided to do the very yuppie thing that I swore that I would never do, which is test my dog's DNA. And I told myself that it was because of practical reasons that I needed to know if I was going to have a Great Dane and that I needed to build an addition to the house. Well, but, that's fair. <laughs> yeah, but really it was just because I really wanted to know. And it turned out he has no lab at all and no Great Dane at all. He is, according to the wisdom test, he is um, half Doberman and then a quarter Rottweiler and then an eighth Sharpay. And then, like an eighth traveling salesman, nobody knows. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so what cute. a sweetie. That is such he's, a good mix. He's, he's so submissive. Like, you would think with all that stuff, he'd be like, hello, it is me, Moo. Everybody <laughs> But he's not. He's just so sweet. Oh, that's precious. Ash, uh, Ash's mom has a Great Dane. Yes. And he's oh, huge. Mm-hmm. But she's apparently small for a Great Dane. Yeah, she is. She's small <laughs> for a Dane. We <laughs> you got her. would never know. Well, because when she was a puppy, we took her to the vet, and the vet was like, so she's growing very, very fast. It's like, it's going to be really, really bad for her physically. So they said if we spayed her early, it would stun her growth, which would be better for her. Well, now she's 11 years old, which is like ancient for a Great Dane. And she's had relatively no health problems. So I'm like, they were correct. So awesome. <laughs> But yeah, so she's smaller than most Danes. She's considerably shorter. But it's so crazy because she, like, when she stands up, if she were here, she would still be like, yeah, her face is like (laughs) she can like reach onto the counter just with her face. Like (laughs) she's standing. Yeah, it's so cute. But yeah, I'm super short, right? I'm like five feet tall. So I envisioned this dog that would be taller than me when it stood up, and I was like, this is not going to be okay. How will I walk him? What will I do? Like, should I just like. I don't know, learn how to skateboard and then he could pull me when we go for a walk. Like, yeah. I, I don't think I can learn how to skateboard. This is just like a terrible. So I just totally catastrophized this whole thing. And then I was like, oh, thank God, no great date. So it, it turned out, it turned out okay. Oh, that's oh, funny. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah, like the skateboard idea. That's great. Yeah, if you that meet is, people yeah. that never worked, that would be very sad. <laughs> No. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. Well, when Shaylee, the Great Dane, was a puppy, like trying to like walk her anywhere, she would just get tired and lay down. She'd be like, I'm done walking now. Yeah. We'd be like, dude, it's like a half a mile home. And she'd be like, rest first. Nope. Not doing it. Not yeah. doing it. Yeah. You can't carry a dog back that that's big. Um, so about your Sword of the Seven Sins book, what inspired it? Um, Good question. Okay, so what inspired it? It was probably back around 2015, maybe-ish, when I first started thinking about it. And, you know, so I told you I'm from Brooklyn, but I live in in the South, and I'm also Jewish. So um, as right around in 2015 is when He Who Shall Not Be Named began to really ramp up, you know, running for office. And as as a Jewish person, like, I began to hear some rumbles and conversation in the South that maybe like people not realizing I was Jewish felt comfortable having those conversations in front mm-hmm. of me. Yeah. Um, so that I had the ability to be in these rooms where what I began to hear was very disturbing. And I began to feel that he who shall not be named had a very strong chance of winning the election. And my friends that were in the Northeast, when I would tell this to them, they'd be like, that is ridiculous. And I'd be like, yeah, I don't really think so. Like, I feel like you're in a bubble. And I wish I was also in that bubble, but I'm not sure. (laughs) And I feel that this is bad news bears. And so much like the catastrophizing with the skateboard and the Great Dane, I began to spin out like what this scenario might look like. I was like, I think he's going to win. And I think that he's going to win because the white supremacists in this country are going to prop him up. 
And I think he's actually probably a puppet for the Russian government in some way because he's got business interests that he's going to advance. And I think he's going to pull us out of our climate accords. And I think that we're going to have tremendous problems as a result and tremendous unrest, civil unrest. And I began to get really worried about this. And because I'm a writer, the way I deal with that, other than yoga, meditation, and a lot of chocolate is like <laughs> to write my stuff out. So I decided to make it like a fantasy kind of a thing that like, what if something like this happened? Um, but, you know, and what if as a result, you know, there were tremendous climate changes in South America? And what if the rivers flooded? And what if the rainforest burned? And what if people tried to come north, but there was, you know, a wall and they couldn't get in? And what if there were tremendous fights? And ultimately, after that, the country split. And in the south, near the weapons depots, there were these little communities that were very strictly controlled under the guise of religion and i called those mm -hmm. the commonwealth and i played this whole thing out and i added a whole fantasy element to it and it made me feel a lot better to work this all out and then he actually got elected and and then all the things started to happen and i was like what have i done <laughs> like, <laughs> you're like i totally like orwelled this no, like, I, manifested totally it. <laughs> I was like i reverse vision boarded this into existence um but you know so i felt like that's kind of where it came from. And then I found myself having published this story that was this romantic dystopian. First one came out July 2020, in the middle of both a pandemic and this like relentless political nightmare. Um, so but I what I realized, actually, that was good, was that my story was ultimately about hope, right? And yeah. so it was about not like, okay, let's wallow in the madness and the sadness and the badness, but like, okay, so let's pretend this thing happened. Oh, look, this thing's happening. Like, you know, so yeah. what's a hopeful way to regard this? Like, how can we take this like bad scenario and spin it with like imagination and love and joy and hope? How can we take rage and fear and like kind of turn that inside out and spin it completely? And imagine that we could really rise from the ashes and create something that is new and beautiful and brave, right? And so that's kind of really where that story came from. And that's why I like take joy out of continuing to write it. And I still have book three to finish um, because that to me is really what it's about. It's it's like, okay, so even in the most dire of circumstances, if you hold on to what you truly believe in and you don't give up on it and you don't feel that you just have to follow the crowd, but you instead follow your heart, that incredible things can happen. So yeah, so that's that's where the story came from, which is kind of kind of weird, but maybe encouraging. Yeah. Oh, my cat is Sorry. she's so angry. <laughs> that's um, awesome. Keep talking. I'm gonna get no, the spray yeah. bottle, Flora. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, and I didn't know all that, but like now that you've mentioned it, I'm like, oh yeah, I totally see that like inspiration in the book. And I agree. It's so um I, I don't know. I love it when there's like a cool resistance group in a book. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And you really did that. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, yeah. When I was reading Sword of the Seven Sins, we had just read a lot of like um, <laughs> books that involve Puritans. We have, and I was we like, have lately, yeah. Have we? <laughs> and I was like, oh man, here they are. At, they're at it again. <laughs> the Puritans are at it again. They are. And um, I was even just from my like <laughs> recent reads, I've been like, oh man, I hate it when there's like, that control and yeah. then there's it feels like there's no hope yeah but the way that the characters like kind of circumvent that in this book is mm -hmm. so interesting to me yeah like 
because they grew up in you know such a strict society that like sorry i'm sorry she is out of control today i she's never like this no she's not it's she's obsessed with you she my cat flora for our listeners club supreme leader flora um is obsessed with kendall increasingly every time she's here so she's just like excuse me why am i not getting her attention right now flora later she came in when i grabbed the spray bottle went and sat between your feet like that was gonna protect her she's like well at least kendall loves me no but oh god anyway sorry Um, no no yeah um one of the cool interesting things about this book was how do you change everything that you know when you've grown up in a society like this sort of and I mean even from the beginning our main characters they're a bit rebellious you know like we see that in like the first chapter but it's still like there's some ingrained things in there that it's like you might know it's bad somewhere like inside but you still have it in your brain that like this is how it is Mm -hmm. and so it's it's so interesting to me when characters are able to kind of break free of their own like frame of reference yeah frame of reference yeah yeah exactly yeah it's true I like um like really speaking to what you're saying like what inspired your book is um and we've talked about this a few times on the podcast how history is history is so cyclical and like Honestly, the best way to see those cycles is to read literature through the ages. Everything, every book that we read really comes as a direct response to, it's all fiction still, but it comes as like a direct response to, you know, the society that came before. And it's just, I think it's the most hopeful thing. Like one of the most hopeful things about literature is seeing this. So, I mean, you know, like decades from now, people can look back now and that the chaos that our world is in and they could pick up the book like The Sword of the Seven Sins and they could be like, oh my god, I see how this is in so many ways of like a reflection of society, but also kind of like a symbol of the moving onward and getting out of this and into the next phase and into the next cycle, which will have its own flaws because there's always the flaws. And then the next cycle of life and literature will reflect that. And I just think, I think it's so hopeful. I think when you view things as like this ongoing cycle and everything that happens is in it's just a direct response to what happened before. I think that, I think it's so hopeful. It's really hard to give up on everything when you think, well, this, there's literally no way this will last forever because it's just not how the world works or has ever worked. And I just think literature is the best way to look at that. Like it just gives you the best picture of that reality. Yeah, because also, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say, I mean, I feel like, you know, artists, um, they're so often like the canary in the coal mine of what's going on with society. Artists yeah. are very, uh, and artists of all kinds, whether they're musicians or visual artists or writers, um, you know, so often you'll see artists move into a neighborhood that's completely run down. There's nothing in there. And that's because they need cheap places to live. They need <laughs> warehouses to, you know, divide into studios. They need whatever they need, you know, and after a while there come the coffee shops because everybody knows artists are fueled by caffeine. And yes. then, you know, all of a sudden there come the other restaurants, there come the art galleries, and now it's the cool place to be. And then the artists yeah. can where they have to leave right but yep but you know artists they are the vanguard in so many ways and at the beginning when things go awry i think they notice and they begin to express that in their art and then they are the ones in the end like if you look at so many different movements look at jazz arise, arising out of reconstruction you know all of these different mm-hmm. things out of some of the most terrible turmoil and pain and strife and stress comes incredible art. And it's, you know, the artists that alert us that something is happening. 
Mm-hmm. It's the artists that work through, you know, creating a different lens from which to see it in the middle. And then it's the artists that lead us out and capture it on the other end. And so that, yeah. like, I think that literature is just another art form that does that. And I think that that is, you know, in a time when so many things are becoming automated um, and there's so much that we don't have to do individually and personally, the art of creation is something that that imaginative piece is what makes us stand apart. And so I, I really do believe that like that the artistic response to the cyclical nature of history is kind of what keeps us going and how we express ourselves. I think during the pandemic, there's a reason why book sales went up so much. There's a reason why people were finding refuge in shows, in movies. There's a reason why so many museums made their exhibits virtual. So I think for anyone who's going to say that like art is a luxury or art isn't necessary or art is whatever. And when I say art, like again, I include literature, I include music, all of it, you know. I think that the past, you know, 18 months or however long while human beings have been like boiled down to their virtual essentials, right? It shows us that even in that state, we need art because it is what gives us that escape and gives us that hope. And so I think like my little book series is like a little microcosm of that on like a little itty bitty level. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it is too. I, I think so too. I just, God, this is like, I could go on forever. This is what I just love about the arts and humanities in general and why it was such a bummer when I was in school to see how little it mattered to so many people because there was no emphasis on it, just emphasis on STEM, STEM, STEM. And STEM is useful and we do need it, absolutely. But I was like, gosh, like no one even knows how to be a human to another person anymore. Like (laughs) this is a problem. And I really feel like that was directly because everyone had kind of not everyone there's been you know there's people like us who've always been into books and writing and will always be into arts but like that that society had for a while there really taken the emphasis off the arts and like had really been like it's not important it's a luxury it's not you know like you don't need it and I think it's what makes us human and teaches us to continue to be human to be good humans to each other um and it's what gives us hope in like truly awful times and then kind of like can give us a framework for how to get out of it again. So I won't go on forever because I totally could. (laughs) But I just think the power of fiction is amazing. Yeah, Yeah, we're always saying that. We're always always like, I know, we're always talking about it. We're like, can you believe how great books are? Oh my God, I love books. (laughs) Oh my God, me too. We should make a podcast about books. (laughs) That's true. Well, Well, how did you get started writing? Um, How did I get started writing? Well, so I think like I started reading like, really early um, and then I loved that. And I was really super shy. Um, And so like, you know, people were scary, but books were welcoming. And like, I can remember being in kindergarten and like my kindergarten teacher had, you know, those little kiddie pools, they're plastic, you know, Mm -hmm. like like not the collapsible ones, but so my teacher Mm -hmm, had one of those in my kindergarten classroom and there were pillows in it and there were like books next to it and this little rotating rack. And I can remember like sitting in the little inflatable kiddie pool with my books, whatever they were that I took off the rack and seeing all the other kids like run around, like yelling and screaming and poking each other with pencils. So and stressful. Thinking, yeah. And I was like, this is so stressful. Like, don't, do they not understand? Maybe I should tell them there's books here <laughs> and this kiddie pool that I'm the only one in and I have pillows. So I'm basically lying back here on the pillows with my book. And y'all are bleeding, like you're literally bleeding and getting stabbed <laughs> and screaming and yelling. Like, 
I feel like I'm onto a secret, but I'm in plain sight, y'all. Hello. So I mean, I think that was like the beginning of like my my love affair with the written work. So I was so shy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started writing, and I had those, you know, those marble black and white composition notebook notebooks. You know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I had one of those, and I would just fill them. And my very first story that I wrote, I found it the other day. I wrote it when I was six and it had an illustration. And I'm sad to say my drawing abilities have apparently not improved much since I was <laughs> oh, <no>. Same. <laughs> um, so it was this like monster thing, mainly made of all scribbled. It had like big ears, like big eyes, and, like a scribbly body. And beneath it, I guess I wasn't very good at spelling. So I had written bloody monster, B-L-O-D-D-Y. I think he was supposed to be bloody monster, but he was bloody. And I then I had like, my, my subtitle, the brave monster who killed the world. Right. Whoa. And, yeah, it's sick. That is <laughs> amazing. And I was like, man, I hope my parents didn't see this because I'm pretty sure I would have wound up in therapy for a long, long time. <laughs> oh my god. Um, yeah. And so I opened it up, and there, my six-year-old writing, like, and I must have put my left hand on the page because all the writing was like on a slant, like it started in the upper left-hand corner, and then it just like, like the top line was a whole line, and the bottom line had like one word because it was like, <laughs> you know. Um, but it was my whole story about bloody monster who like. Actually, it's a pretty good fit for the pretentious podcast. He was the brave monster who killed the world, and he began with stupid and boopit his parents. Ah! <laughs> yeah. So uh, I guess I was a pretty snobby six-year-old. Um, and keep that is amazing. Yeah. Um, and, but, you know, so I started writing, and then um, I just kind of kept at it, and I wrote poems, and I wrote all kinds of stuff, and I was a musician, so I played the violin, and I wrote, and that was, like, basically – um, what I did, and then in middle school, a friend of mine and, and I, we had this collaborative story that we wrote, and it was so bad, y'all. It was so bad. <laughs> this is and- so weird, because I, I was literally, like, very similar memories of my elementary school classroom and reading. Um, no bloody monster story for me, but I also played the violin, and I wrote, like, two or three very cringy collaborative <laughs> works with friends in, like, elementary and middle school. And it- <laughs> Well, so yeah, like, so before I for, always forgot this, this is the best. So before the collaborative thing, which was just awful, it was about yeah. this character who when she got angry, her eyes changed color. So like, you That's knew awesome. that like, when she was mad, her eyes were purple. When she was happy, her eyes were light blue. I like, I don't know. It was very disturbing. She's but, like a human okay. mood ring. Mine was it. called Mer Fairy Tales. And oh, it no. was about a mermaid and a fairy who were friends. So. <laughs> oh, see, sweet. So I forgot this. Maybe you'll appreciate this. So in the fourth grade, I read Judy Blooms Forever. Do y'all know that mm-hmm. book? Mm-hmm. It has some smexy scenes in it, right? When you're nine, you think. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I read Judy Blooms Forever. And I remember thinking, I could write this. So I wrote this book. And it was all, I wrote, when I say wrote, I mean, I wrote, like on loose leaf paper, I wrote. Mm-hmm. And I like yeah. a little bit improved the slantiness, but we're only talking like three years after Bloody Monsters. <laughs> so like, was uh-huh. it wasn't really improved. And I called it page 17 because my sexy scene was on page 17. And I brought it to school and it ended up being this thing that like everybody would like read in the bathroom stall and they would sneak (laughs) inside their like textbooks, which were covered with like paper bags that they'd drawn on, you know? Oh my God. um, And would be like, what are you reading? And I was like, nothing. And (laughs) I don't know how I didn't get in trouble because I would have gotten so much trouble if everyone had read page 17. But I think that was like my beginning of the foray into writing hot love scenes, which I love to write. Oh my God. Everyone was like, we need to have Emily's work right now. (laughs) I love that. It was like the the power of fan fiction, right? I don't know. Yeah. So this happened. And then like a couple years later, I wrote like the human mood ring story with my friend. 
And that brings us to high school. And I had like this novel that I wrote in high school and I took it to college with me. And I was at college and it was like even more sexy than the previous one. And so then it was like being passed around my dorm room, like really nothing had changed. Then people were coming to me and being like, I slept with this horrible boy and it is all your fault because I did a sexy scene. And I feel like, I have the power. Um, so, <laughs> um, so yeah, so that was sort of like my, my beginning. And then um, I got to like what I was telling you about before we started recording, um, which was I got to my junior year of college and I um, got into the seminar. It was a small seminar. The school was kind of snobby as a private college down here in North Carolina, Duke. And um, I um, was like, oh, this will be great. I was a psych major. I also um, had like a literature media studies uh, focus. And so I was like, you know what? Like I had not decided to take any writing classes in college. So I was like, I want to do something new, something different, something I haven't been exposed to. But my friends persuaded me to take this seminar. So I was like, oh, okay. So I took it. And the very first day we're all going around the room and everyone is supposed to say their favorite authors. So I don't know, somebody said like Sir Fancy Pants and somebody else said Madame Fancy Pants and yeah. they that to me. And like, I said a couple people that were apparently acceptable. And then as I was telling you before, I said <laughs> Anne Rice. And this like striking dreadful, could have heard the proverbial pin drop, silence <laughs> all over this room. Like you couldn't hear a word. And then like, literally people started doing the thing where they inch under the table as if like they were trying to like hide themselves to save me from my own mortification or they like couldn't be to witness it and I was oh like my god what y'all because as I told you I gone to a public high school where we were just really taught that good writing is good writing in whatever form and bad, yeah. writing, bad writing whatever form and you should make those decisions for yourself so and I still really believe that and I yeah. believe that then but that was not acceptable in these hallowed halls so, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the professor did not like this one bit at all, and he, for the entirety of the semester, every time that anybody wrote anything or shared anything that he deemed to be the least bit popular as compared to literary, um, he would look at me and he would say, "I don't know about this. What do you think?" And Rice. And that is literally what he called me, never by my name, the whole semester, Anne Rice. Every piece of writing I submitted, he critiqued in these awful ways. And I really wanted to drop out of the class because yeah. it was humiliating. I mean, it was a tiny table and like 10 of us, you know, and yeah. And so, but I was like, you know what? Like, I'm not going to let this man, this awful man drive me out of this class. Like, I'm supposed to be here. I'm registered. I'm going to stay here. So I stayed. But by the end of that semester, I was like, wow. Clearly I suck and I'm not meant to be a writer. No. And this is like not a career I should pursue because not only is my literary taste suspect and what I like to read, but obviously everything I write is terrible because that was the mm -hmm. thing that I got, you know. So I left that class and I began interning at small presses and magazines. Um, and I loved it. And I loved finding writers in the slush pile and giving them a chance. And it was amazing to me, even getting the mail and, and like seeing what new submissions came because back then like there was, you know, mail. Yeah. You know, it was like incredible to me. And I loved it. And so I ended up getting a job with a Duke professor who, um, she was a tenured English professor, but secretly wrote romance novels. And she, <laughs> yes, it was a secret. <laughs> it was a secret because like nobody could, you know, know this because she felt like her relation, her, her reputation would have been just like terribly compromised. 
So um, she decided she was going to start her own publishing company, and it was going to be to bring out literary romance, which is what she wrote, not just her, but other people too. And so she hired me, and I learned all about how to run a small business, and I learned the ins and outs of small press publishing back in the day before indie publishing was really a thing, and I adored it. And I went on from that to um, help start another publishing company, loved that, went on from that to work at an organization that did arts education for children of financial need, loved that. And then there came a day, that, and I had not been doing any creative writing for years, not since I sat in that little seminar, nothing. Mm -hmm. um, I, I felt like, well, maybe my job is to help other people find their creativity and be the best writers they can be, or be the best young artists that they can be. And I'm okay with that. Like, I feel that that's good. You know, it's important to have someone to encourage you. And one day, um, so my job at this um, nonprofit, this arts nonprofit was associate director. And as part of that, my job was to wrangle the teaching artists, to get them to do things like submit a plan for your class or submit your timesheet or these things, right? If you've ever worked with a big group of artists, you know, it's like herding kittens. Like, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't happen. You put a little bit of wine in them and it really doesn't happen. So I was, like, I was sitting at a teaching artist meeting um, where all of the above conditions prevailed. And I, I needed them to do something. I don't remember now. It was like, let's say it was fill out your timesheet or give me your timesheet, God forbid, or, or find your timesheet. I mean, that's a high bar too. Um, and so I had asked them for this. And instead of like doing that, it just devolved into talk amongst yourselves. And they just were all doing that and drinking. And I was like, oh, sweet Mary. And I was like, okay, well, whatever. I have other things to do. So I just sat there doodling in my little book, uh, like a grown up version of Bloody Monster, like making some notes. And the, the musician who was sitting next to me turned to me, one of the teaching artists, she was like, Emily, I'm so sorry. She was like, this must be so annoying. Like you're an arts administrator, you're so organized. I'm so sorry that you have to deal with us. And it was like the cartoons where the light bulb goes off over the characters' heads. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, like, these people know me as somebody who writes grants, you know, does strategic planning, does program planning, and nags them for their timesheets and occasionally like supplies two buck chuck at teaching artist meetings. Like that, <laughs> that's me, right? They don't know that I spent like a huge chunk of my life playing the violin and traveling internationally and, and, and doing mm -hmm. all of this stuff. They don't know about Bloody Monster or anything that came after Bloody Monster. They don't even know that yeah. I used to run small presses. Like yeah. none of this do they know. They just think of me as an arts administrator and they can't imagine that I would possibly empathize with what it might like be like to be on the other, the creative side of the fence, yeah. the facilitation of the creative side of the fence. And so it was sort of like that, that poem, like, you know, um, two roads diverged in the wood and I, I took the yeah. one that traveled by. I, I like I could see, you know, sometimes I think in life in life we only realize retroactively, retrospectively, that we passed a crossroads and we made an important choice and we only know it because of how important what happened was. Like maybe you moved to a new city and if you hadn't moved, you would never have met your significant other or whatever. And you're like, Oh, I thought I was just moving for this job or, you know, for this thing, but really this impacted the rest of my life. And I think mm -hmm. sometimes we see those choices very clearly in front of us and we know that what we're gonna do next is gonna make a huge difference. And this was like one of those moments, like I was like, okay, wow. So I could either be like, wow, you're right, I don't know. And I could continue this life that I had of working really hard to try and make sure that young people had access to high quality state-of-the-art artistic opportunities. 
and I wouldn't ever feel like I had wasted my life. I would feel like it was a good cause and it was important and I was making a difference. It's not like I was making widgets, you know, it was meaningful to me anyway. And I hope to those kids and families as part of a larger whole, or I could be like, wow, I'm encouraging these kids and families that come from such difficult circumstances to be brave and vulnerable enough to open themselves up to artistic endeavors, yet I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna sit here hmm. and write these little grants. And I really thought about it and I was like, I don't think I could live with myself if I didn't at least try. Yes. Yeah. So that's what I did. And I, I decided I was gonna build up my freelance writing career. So I did that, I built up. Um, a career writing articles and freelance grants and all this stuff so I would have an income stream when I stepped away from the nonprofit because the nonprofit was so all-consuming and also mm -hmm. I had a small child that I knew there was no way I could really try to give my writing a chance if I was still there. So I, I told myself I'd give myself a year and I would have this year to try and write this book. And if I couldn't by the end of the year come up with a book, then not meant to be. <laughs> um, and so that's what I did. And that book was the book that became The Memory Thief. And then that was the beginning of my writing career for my novel. That is amazing. So inspiring. <laughs> I love that story. Wow. Yeah. That was great. And you tell it so well, yeah, too. You, yes, you do. <laughs> that was awesome. Man, and that's so cool that The Memory Thief, like, took off so well, yeah. too, you know? Like, for... Yeah, it was like... It, it was just the strangest thing and you know it was the I think it was weird too though because a lot of the time I didn't have kind of the stereotypical story that a lot of people have like I had done my time in the writing trenches but in a different way all yeah. those years of interning at small presses all those years of reading other people's slush piles all those years of working in small presses myself as a career all those years of writing marketing copy and grants so that I understood how to write that cover copy. Like, so I think like for anybody who wants to pursue a career that who might be listening, who wants to pursue a career as a creative writer, but it's like, oh, well, I've only written white papers or I've only written grants or I've only written, mm -hmm. I don't know, whatever you might be writing, like descriptions of paint colors, like whatever it is, <laughs> yeah. all of that writing counts. Like mm -hmm. when it came time for me, because um, I pursued traditional publishing um, with the Memory Thief and I knew I wanted to query agents and I didn't know any agents. I wasn't coming out of a creative writing program. I wasn't part of a creative writing community. I wasn't big on social media back then. It was just like me and my one mentor who was an amazing person. Um, and I was like, what do I do now? And she was like, find an agent, query 75. And if one of them doesn't want you, come back to me. And I was like, where are you going to find 75? I don't even know one. <laughs> like I live in coastal North Carolina. It's not like I can like walk out into like Broadway and like throw a rock and hit a literary agent. Not that I would yeah. <laughs> terrible. Um, but you know, so I didn't know what to do. And one thing I knew is that I had to write this compelling query letter. Mm -hmm. And when I sat down to write it, I realized that all those years of having to write concise things for newsletters, marketing copy, grants, you name it, completely oh, yeah. lent themselves to yeah. writing a, a query that got people's attention. So mm -hmm. all writing counts, like it, it all counts. You're not starting from zero if you have any kind of writing experience and you're not starting from zero if you're an avid reader uh, reading with your editorial eye on. So it felt like zero to 75, but I think I had been like slowly revving in like invisibility mm -hmm. for a long time. Yeah, yeah that, that is awesome sense. advice too. Yeah. I mean, query, 
queries are the hardest so thing to hard. write. <laughs> yeah, but so I think tough. the same thing. Like I I always said I was never going to be a marketing copywriter because I'm like, no, I'm a creative writer. I don't want to do that. And I was like, no, I don't want to be a teacher, but thank you for asking me everybody in the whole world to <laughs> be one who heard I was an English lit major. Um, but I did end up to pay the bills. I ended up doing like copywriting for a, a like a lawyer firm and then I like and I, I currently still copyright for a um a company that makes like waterproof audio products but mm-hmm. I do think since then like the my creative writing was fine before and it, as long as I'm reading it's growing but my query letters were not great like they're hard to write from the start and I do think that like since working these other jobs it's been like a few years now that I've been working these like more co- corporate type writing jobs which I always avoided I do think my query letters have become way more powerful because learning to write like concisely to catch the eye, like it's a different, it's a different skill set than creative writing on its own is. So there's definitely like your reading gives you creative writing support and, you know, even doing the writing that you don't like, (laughs) like copywriting stuff (laughs) is, um, it still can still be really valuable to your creative writing career. So I think for anyone out there who's having to do that too, you don't, don't feel like a failure because you've had to turn to that job that you said that you never wanted. You never wanted to be a marketing copywriter because you're still, you can still support your career, your creative writing career out of, out of the things you learn. Just like you were saying, which I just never predicted. I was like, God, this is like a step in the wrong direction, (laughs) which actually I don't think is the case. I think it actually has given me some skills to take a small step back in the direction I'm trying to go. So, yeah, there's always like weird avenues that you're like, oh, I never would have learned that. (laughs) Kind of like you saying about like, (laughs) oh, maybe I never would have met this person or I never would have had this experience. So, Yeah. yeah. So. Where do you think you would fit in if you lived in the world of sort of the seven cents? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, so this is what I think. Um, and I wasn't sure about this, but like the past couple of years, I think I've made this pretty evident. I'm always so like confused when I read books and watch movies and like the person who is like rebellious just can't contain themselves and makes themselves like such a target, right? I'm like, well, great. Now everybody's gonna be onto you. How are you <laughs> going to like accomplish what it is that you need to do? I always think this every single time. I'm like, don't you realize that if you just like kind of pretended to go along while secretly fomenting, you know, change and resistance mm-hmm. to the surface, that you'd be able to accomplish so much more because nobody would suspect you and it would be so much longer before they found you out. So you would be able to do so much more good. And absolutely, yes. And so that drives me nuts when I see that. And like, I, (laughs) I'm a sort of person who like, usually like I have a fairly active filter most of the time between my brain and my mouth, right? So (laughs) part of that I think comes from being a New Yorker who moved to the South. So like when I first left New York, I lived in New Zealand. That's where I finished high school. And I think that was like my big like oh being from new york city has created like a certain kind of me a me that just says whatever and has no idea how the rest of the world functions and i got in all kinds of trouble all the time never <laughs> having gotten in trouble ever in my life and i met another exchange student in new zealand from a tiny town in washington state and i was like what is wrong with me why is everyone always mad at me like i don't understand <laughs> like i'm just being me and she said you know what 
She's like, you know, I'm from this tiny town in Washington state. It's not that different for me in the tiny town in New Zealand. I don't think the difference is America to New Zealand for you. I think the difference is New York City to the tiny little town. And so I think yeah. by the time I moved to like coastal North Carolina or even Durham, North Carolina, which is where Duke is, I had that filter in place. And so I think that when I imagine myself, because I think that you have to have it in a sense in the South, right? Yeah. Be very careful what you say. And sometimes people say one thing and mean another. And that's not how it is <laughs> yes. in New York City. It's not that. It's all like, bless her heart. She could eat an apple through a picket fence. You know, like we don't have that <laughs> in New York. You just like say what you mean and mean what you say mm-hmm. and swear a lot, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. so like inside me is that, hey, what are you? Like that's still in there, right? But like <laughs> I don't, it doesn't serve me here. So I don't do that. So yeah, I, I think like, um, my strengths in the world of the seven sins is like, I've like learned to become fairly adaptable and I have like, you know, filter, activate, like, you know, I can just off <laughs> pretty well. And so I think that I would probably like Eva be very troubled by what I saw beneath the yeah. surface, probably like Eva not want to be any part of this brutalizing system. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that I would necessarily try to escape the confines of the Commonwealth because I don't know that I would have trust in my own ability to survive out there. I think instead I would try to make my life inside the Commonwealth as good for me and the other people there as I could. So I could totally see myself like being the person who's like, I just want the plain oatmeal, like Eva does in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Like, it's yeah. little tiny rebellions. I am very uncoordinated. So I'm like, Eva, <laughs> like, I can't see myself like wielding a sword or leaping tall buildings in a single bound. But I could like totally see myself as like, you know, it, there's a short story that got included in an anthology that's in the Seven Sins world. And it's um, part of it is about Ari's mother, who was a scholar and a librarian. And so I could totally see myself being that, you know, like she realized, you know, that like all she wanted to do was be the best scholar and librarian that she could be. She was the keeper of the knowledge of the Commonwealth. And she never imagined violating that until she fell in love and like mm-hmm. exploded right and then her life turned into something she never thought yeah. it could or would and she wound up on the side of the rebels so yes. i could like <laughs> oh, yeah I, so she was like this secret librarian scholar rebel and like i kind of think that's where i'd be like yeah i could do with my words what i could never do with a sword because i probably cut off my own foot and no one needs that least yeah. of all me. So, i think that's a lot yeah. of us and probably a lot of our listeners too like we are not an athletic group of people <laughs> I'm aware of that. I think we, I think that'd be where we would all kind of end up like ideally in this world is like being like a scholar librarian with who, who uses their words and, and commits acts of tiny rebellion because we have no physical advantage whatsoever. But that's See, the thing. No one suspects us. Right. Because they're like, yeah. you know, like for me, they'd be like, look, y'all yesterday I broke two different things. I broke my favorite pottery butter dish, which is really sad for me. No. And then I broke this like eggplant mix jar thing from Trader Joe's because I was trying to take like a thing of lemons out behind it. And I was like, that's what I get for trying to have like salmon and lemon, like to be healthy. Like that's what I get. (laughs) I'm looking at eggplant stuff all over the floor. But you know, like 
if I can't even make a meal, how am I going to like defend an entire like commonwealth? Yeah. Like it seems difficult. <laughs> yeah. My my husband will run top speed, or at least he used to run top speed into the room every time he'd hear like a thud or a thump because yeah. he's convinced I'm going to accidentally kill myself. <laughs> because yeah. I did one time fall and almost hit my head like on the corner of the entertainment center. And if I had like actually hit, I might have died. <laughs> oh no! Like, and I just like tripped on the carpet. And he's it's happened so often now that he never he doesn't run into the room anymore. But yeah. for like the first year of our lives together he was just like okay you have to stop you're always almost dying in like the stupidest ways and I'm just so scared yeah yeah well, it's so true it's so true it's so bad like, I would like oh I would like to be with y'all where I'm like yeah I'm making a difference from the inside I'm a scholar I'm uh-huh. a cool rebel I feel like I would be so <laughs> I would also be like, I hate this. I hate <laughs> violence and I hate all the mm-hmm. stupid rules. But my <laughs> like timid, cowardly brain is like, what do I do? <laughs> we would just, I'd just band be together. We would just band together and make our own secret society God. of the, the rebel scholar librarians. Yes. And you'd perfect. be fine. See, I'd probably be like a trash collector or something like with my... <laughs> To be honest, <laughs> dead. I, but a, a strong part of me would want to see outside the Commonwealth, though. I feel like a very strong part of me would, because I can't. I'm so instinctually anti-group, anti even like city. <laughs> like I am still like I am my current like my next big life goal is trying anything to get out of living. I don't even want to live within sight of a city. Like I want to. I want to be out <laughs> of it be all by yourself in and the I've middle of nowhere. Always, but yeah, I'd rather be. I always have been like that. <laughs> always, even when I was a kid in the suburbs who didn't really even understand that that was like a thing really i was like everyone lives in the suburbs <laughs> and i was still the like whole world is. i hate the suburbs i want to go somewhere that's not this as i think of i don't know if i would have actually made it out or not if that was my whole frame of reference for reality but i would have wanted to i would have wanted to see the other side <laughs> me too i mean yeah it because the whole time it's like so interesting if you grew up there you're like well are they telling a lie? Like, yeah. what is it actually like outside? That's Which was interesting from Eva's perspective. When people, like, just believe what an authority figure tells them because <laughs> it's an authority figure. <laughs> it drives me bananas when people are like, like, they don't question it. And so I get well, called a conspiracy of theorist sometimes. And maybe sometimes that's true. <laughs> but I'm like, isn't that the safer <laughs> side, though? <laughs> to just assume that the person in charge is possibly lying to you? See, I'm... I'm my Capricorn brain is like rules. I love them. So anyway. My Aries brain is like, what if we burn this entire society to the ground just to see? Like just to see. <laughs> well, oh my, my yeah, my Leo brain is like, huh, someone has done something to offend my pride. I will have my revenge and lead you all to safety. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. We were going to ask you what your zodiac zodiac sign is. I'm the biggest Leo that has ever Leoed. There has never been such a Leo ever. That's amazing. amazing. My my little sister is a Leo. That's fun. Leos are so strong. They are such like admirable people for the most part. Like it's like you you use your powers for good or for evil. You know. Yes, it's true. Exactly. I think Aries exclusively use our powers for chaos. It's neither good nor evil. We're somewhere in the middle. I don't want bad things to happen to other people. You guys should team up and then, uh, like, in the world of the seven. Yeah. But we we could use you too, though. Yeah, sure. Yeah. (laughs) No, you don't understand. This is why this this works for us with the podcast. Could you imagine an all Ash podcast? (laughs) You need me to temper your chaos? Is that what you're saying? I do. I need you to convince people that I'm actually not an asshole. (laughs) 
I guess, uh, yeah, like while we're on the subject of the book, what who is your favorite character in the book? That could be either writing them or like just who you like the best. Mm-hmm. Whatever you want to Your book bestie. Answer. Yeah, your book bestie. <laughs> so it's funny because like I, so I have a, like a favorite character from this series, but then um, when I started writing the short stories, then I developed like whole new favorite characters in there. Um, which was unusual because I did not expect that. And I was like, where did you come from? And why do I love you so much? Um, <laughs> but so yes, yeah, so in the series, I love Ari. I love writing Ari. Um, and I think maybe it's because Ari is really different from me. So like Eva is more like me in that, like before she does something, like she like, Eva is like a total Scorpio, right? Like before she does <laughs> something, she's like, okay, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? How will this serve me? How might this hurt me? You know, she thinks all she this is such her, a Scorpio. She's a total Scorpio. And everything she does, I mean, I'm not a Scorpio, but um, the way that I'm like Eva is that I, like I said before, I do have that filter. Mm-hmm. And I, I tend to think these things through sometimes to my detriment, right? Where I'm like, mm-hmm. well, this isn't the logical thing to do. So even if I really want to do it, I'm not going to do it because it's not logical and it's not practical and all of this, you know? And Ari on the other, and Eva's like that, right? Like, this isn't a good idea. This could get us hurt. Don't you understand what might happen? No, I waited like seven years to act on this. And then only because you tossed me out a window and I had to live or die. Like, <laughs> you know, like no, I'm not going to do this because this could negatively impact me, right? Yeah. Which is kind of like me. Like, I'm sort of like, okay, I'll bide my time till it's the right time because I'm not going to screw up, you know, I'm not going to harsh my own buzz over here. So, so like, <laughs> yeah, you know, whereas Ari is kind of more like I wish I was sometimes where mm-hmm. his, he's so deeply connected to his own emotions. And in the short story co- collection, you get to see why that happened how that happened and when he was younger like how he grieved having to let that part of him go to become the person that he needed to be to survive the rest of his life Mm. and who he sneakily helped even though it cost him some terrible things you find out why he was whipped in the in the square like that Mm -hmm. and who he protected to make that happen right and at what cost who he saved to make it happen and it was really because he knew he had to give up that part of himself, but he saw somebody else who kept it and he didn't want to drive that tenderness and kindness out of that person. So he took a, a whipping for him, you know? Yeah. And so for me with Ari, I love writing him because to me, he's such a great combo. He is so strong. He's so snarky, which, I mean, you've talked to me for a little bit. You see him like, you know, not the least sarcastic <laughs> person out there. Um, you know, he's funny He's brave, um, but he's also sometimes rash because he's completely driven by his emotions. And even when he knows that something might get him in terrible trouble, even when he knows that the price he pays might be his life or his freedom or his reputation, if it's something that he knows in his heart is right, he's going to do it. And yeah. there's Eva on the other side being like, you freaking idiots. Like, would you stop <laughs> this? Like, you moron. He's like, no, you're you're the moron because you are so willing to let what you think in your head rule you that you are not going to give your heart a fighting chance. So to me, that's what I love about them because when you integrate them together, you get one fully functional sort of human being, right? <laughs> I like, love that. 
yeah, yeah you know, it's like those their 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 flaws and their strengths complement mm-hmm. each other really well and so apart from each other they are both so flawed in these ways that are even potentially fatal and those qualities in the other person that they value much are also the qualities that they fight the most against and that anger them the most right yeah but when you put them together you get sort of this unstoppable force. So that's one reason I think I love Ari because I feel like he he's a good example of me constantly working to integrate my own emotional piece into that brain piece, which is like something that I'm always trying to do. So I do so much yoga badly while falling over. Yeah, <laughs> same. <laughs> yeah, like always trying to do that. So I love him for that reason. And I find him to be so much fun to write um, for that reason. And then in the short stories, there's three characters in the short stories. If you ever read that um, collection, I'd love for you to guess which three characters they are um, that um, don't really play a role in the um, main collection. Well, one of them we see, one of them we see um, in book two, uh, but there's three characters that I just love so much and um, for various different reasons. And when I wrote them, I was like, okay, you, I, I see you and I love you. So, yeah, so yeah, those are those are some of some of my favorites. I love that. Okay. I love that too. One, one of my favorite it was just like a little moment in the book, but I laughed so hard. Um there was a moment where Ari was kind of being all emotional. He's like, Listen, I I would die to be with you kind of vibes. Uh-huh. And <laughs> Eva was like, Okay, like that's embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> Was cracking, even while she obviously feels the same way, She's but like, she was Ari, like, get your shit I can't together. believe you would admit that. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're so totally, cute. She's totally, and she is that girl. You know, if you got her into regular society, she's that girl. She's like, okay, yeah, I get that you want to profess your undying, you know, love for me and everything, but we have a math final tomorrow, so pull it together and get me some coffee. Exactly. <laughs> that has strong vibes. See, I kept thinking, this is probably my main character syndrome again. But I love Ari. Actually, I don't know about that because I, I actually don't relate as much to Eva. But I love Ari. And I think I see, I see in Ari a lot of, like, hobbiness. Like, and Her husband. My husband, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's in the army. So, like, he's that, like, brotherhood thing and that, like, we got these rules and regulations. And he knows him really well. But he'll also, like, he'll sacrifice himself for his buddies and, like, to do the right thing. And he, he makes decisions that I sometimes I'm like you're going to get in so much trouble for that. And he's like, yeah, but it was the right thing to do. And I'm like, you are going to get in so much trouble. And so he, he definitely has that. But also that like, uh, I think it was like our second or third date. He said he was going to marry me. And I was like, so he's either very romantic or he's absolutely batshit crazy. <laughs> and I'm not sure which one yet. <laughs> well, figure it out. That had, um, strong, strong vibes of Ari being like, I love you. And Eva's like, Stop professing your love for me right now, <laughs> right this instant. She was like, right makeup session instant. was hot, but <laughs> sorry, what? Yeah, we've had two conversations and also we're about to be killed. And also we've got a commonwealth to save. So yeah, exactly. she's like, this is not the time. She does have vibes. When I like watch a movie and like, it's like a really intense like action moment, right? And everything's on the line. And then like the love interest have to, for some reason, like have a hot makeout moment. I'm like, there are more important things happening right yeah. now, you guys. Yeah. Well, that's kind of like what I, when I wrote Ari, like I wanted, for me, it was, it was really interesting to me because like when you write YA and YA romance, I think consent is so important, right? Like you really always want to write something that has consent in it. Then I also thought, but what does that mean 
for these two people that come from the society where sex and love isn't the thing, isn't allowed, yeah. is forbidden. And on top of that, the only way that they are allowed to channel strong emotion is through violence, mm-hmm. right? So how do you write these characters um, to have healthy love scenes around consent when they don't know anything about any of that and they come from this extremely violent subset of the society and so for Mm -hmm. me like i really wanted to write ari to have this incredibly strong respect for eva in every circumstance like this respect that she could take care of herself this respect that she was really smart this be not understanding why but being okay with the fact that maybe she was stronger than he was or better than Mm -hmm. he was at certain things it was hard for him to wrestle with that because I am the mentor and you're the apprentice and I'm the experienced one and you're the whatever. But when push came to shove and their lives were on the line and they're running, spoiler alert, like through <laughs> the forest and dire things are happening and it's pitch dark and it's pouring, she says, let me go ahead. I can see better. And he doesn't put up a fuss, you know? Yeah. That's like another thing that I really like about Ari is that even in mm-hmm. these, in e- I hope, in every circumstance that they're in, once they get past their rocky beginning, he treats her with complete and total respect. And I don't know if mm-hmm. you guys have read the second book, but have you read the second book? No, oh, not yet, no. Okay. So if and when you read the second book, like there's a lot of other occasions where they are put in some really difficult situations and mm-hmm. his feelings and the way that he is and what he thinks about Eva is completely put on the line. And he has to make some incredibly difficult choices. And so does she. And ultimately, at like the scene that was my favorite to write in that book that I can't talk about because you guys didn't read it. Um, but he makes this choice, which is putting her first in the most heartbreaking moment of his life, right? Oh, and I'm so, already upset. <laughs> so, so for me, like, I, that's another reason why I really like him because mm-hmm. like it sounds like, like your husband is like he does what he believes is the right thing and the, the interesting thing about them is he does the right thing because of how he is emotionally motivated and because he follows mm-hmm. his heart. Eva does yeah. the right thing because she has an abiding and strong intellectual belief in the importance of fairness and justice mm-hmm. but they usually arrive at the same place just for different reasons. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That, that that dynamic is Javi and I. Um, that 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 one specifically. Yeah, Javi's funny in the sense that um, he thinks that he's not emotionally driven. He thinks he doesn't make his decisions based on emotion. And I'm like, that is hysterical to me knowing you <laughs> because you are. But they get you to the right place because he has a good heart. So all these emotions come from a great place. He's not like an irrationally like like crazy, outbursty, hysterical, emotional person. It's just that his emotions do lead him and that's fine but he's so funny because he thinks it doesn't which i think is also like kind of just like a dude thing because dudes are taught like to be emotional is bad so they don't want to admit it but i'm like no you are emotional it's what i like about him and that's what i love about ari too is it's just absolutely he's so emotion driven but he still makes good decisions and makes really hard choices based on that like there's no shame in letting like your emotions guide you I mean, as long as you're also using some brain power, which is also where it's you know, super helpful. <laughs> Please have well, some I, common I, sense. Yeah, I think too. Yeah, that, common like, sense. Yeah, I think sometimes like in guy world, where unfortunately in our society, they are taught exactly what you said, that emotions are, so they will tend, in my experience, to call them gut feelings. Yes. You know, instincts. Was, yes. Yeah. He's like, I have really strong instincts. And I'm like, those are called feelings. Yeah. 
But you know, it's interesting. So I was reading the other day about the vagus nerve. This is going to sound so random, but I promise it's not. So the vagus no, nerve. I love is, it. Okay, so here we go. So the vagus nerve is a nerve that runs from your brain stem all the way into your digestive system, right? And like, if you've ever met someone who like passes out when they have blood drawn, right? That's like usually mm. a vagus nerve response, right? So, mm-hmm. um, and and so the, your vagus nerve helps to like regulate your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. It does all kinds of really important things. And because it runs so far, it influences so much. So when you say you have a gut feeling, right? That mm-hmm. is like this intersection of the vagus nerve and your nervous system with that part of your body reacting like you know neurochemically and telling you what to do so there is this sort of like neurobiological underpinning to it right and so Mm -hmm. i think about that sometimes with people that i know like we all know people and it sounds like maybe javi is that way where like they just they meet someone and they can read them really well immediately they get them you know or you know you go to them because you're like okay you are like my like decision making vacuum cleaner please suck out all of the nonsense and help me drill down to what your gut feeling is because your gut feelings and situations are usually mm-hmm. right. you yeah. know and, and so and, and there is this like biological underpinning to it um and and also then this emotional piece as we process it and so it's kind of like what i love about re2 is that he is not afraid to trust his own instincts, whatever he would mm-hmm. call them. He, I don't, he probably wouldn't call them emotions either because he's sorry, but like his, <laughs> own, like his own gut feelings, like he is not afraid to trust those and go where they will lead, even though mm-hmm. he recognizes that all his life they've done nothing but get him into trouble because yeah. living, you know, any other way is pretty unthinkable for him. So yeah, that's kind of why I like him because he's very, emotionally honest whereas Eva is far more of a Scorpio where she's like you need to know and I'm going to tell you when you need to know it and if it's going to hurt me then you'll never know it mm-hmm. yeah yeah and yeah. my I'm... moon sign is Scorpio by the way <laughs> you like how I waited this whole time to say it I was like by don't say it Ash and then I was like I'm gonna say it well I think that you can kind of see the difference between them also like and we do like spoilers on this podcast yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> but the um the scene where they, um, where she basically like betrays him, quote unquote, but like she's actually trying to protect him because <gasps> he <laughs> is kind of pretty quickly like, oh my God, like I misread her and everything yep. is bad and she hates me. Yep. And she's like thinking about it kind of more analytically, like how can mm-hmm. I work this situation to our advantage? Yeah. And it's like they have different responses in that way and it's kind of interesting to me because it took him a while to be it like did take him wait a, while. a minute I <laughs> I was so upset I was like no no Ari, I know I was don't. like Ari obviously she loves you but I was like honestly I don't know what I would do either no she was so she her execution of that like cold calculated save I could never I don't think I could ever be that cold and calculated in a save she did it <laughs> I mean and it wouldn't have worked if not for that like she was so convincingly like not on his side in that moment and I like I genuinely don't think I could because I'd be too worried that that Ari would believe <laughs> which is the <laughs> whole point but, but that's her right so like that's yeah. the difference between them right there like everyone is like well how could Ari be so quick to believe well because he's driven by emotion and gut in- instinct mm-hmm. so he could never have done that to her like he would yeah. rather have died right yeah. next to her in a puddle of whatever right on those stones at her feet yeah that's then have her for like one second that he could yeah. betray her in that way Whereas yeah, yeah exactly. Like, you flipping dumbass. Like, I gave you a chance. Do you not mm-hmm. understand what's going on? 
get out. And if you hate me in the process, well, I wish you'd be smart enough to realize what I'm really doing. But (laughs) I actually, I think Eva probably, if I really get into Eva's brain in that moment, probably is glad to an extent that he believes her because she doesn't Mm. want him coming back. She doesn't want to endanger him. She's trying to save him. So, you know, it's like this, you know, he he is so quick to believe the worst because Mm -hmm. he, you know, knows in a way that it was stupid to let his emotions lead him down this road yes yes exactly what my husband would like i can just imagine this do you know how quickly he would believe that like if he were in that moment in that scene like i think i would too honestly really yeah i wouldn't because i don't trust anything anyone says i'd be like "Mm, but what if that's not what they really meant (laughs) (laughs) how you'd be like i can't believe i was wrong wow (laughs) he's so mad well i think that her um I was thinking the same thing whenever uh, he like turned and left when she was like, run. I was like, part of me was like, how could he do that? Doesn't he know she's faking? Like, shouldn't uh-huh. he stay and fight? But then I was like thinking about, oh, man, I bet she's really relieved. Honestly, a part of me was kind of relieved because her whole goal was like, I'm going into this with the intention of like saving Ari. Yeah. And so the fact that he like, kind of fell for it was actually yeah. good well, but was, her plan was successful her plan was, was successful heartbroken i know and heartbroken that he so quickly and easily believed it i hate that in any story when like a character to save someone is basically like yeah i don't love you and they're like they don't love me and i'm like no you stupid person of course they love you, you No, know, i love it too though i'm like yes this is one of my favorite tropes my honestly heart. i was like yes break his heart i know it just but- so upsets me when like the idea that like somebody that I love that they would question that I love them like that breaks my heart well yeah more than anything so I'm like I'm just and I'm not I'm not Eva enough to do it <laughs> she is I just don't think I could have executed it like that because she was just like this is for the best and I was just like like to me it's like to believe I feel like to believe that no one loves you almost seems like worse than death so I'm like, like that's if I were Ari, I'd be like, this is worse than me dying. Yeah, well, if you think about it, like if you think about it with Ari, like also it's complicated because they have no other examples of love. So yeah. he really doesn't know, like, what does it mean to love somebody? Is what I feel the same as what she feels? Was she just pretending all along? Was I an idiot mm-hmm. to think maybe there's nobody else in all the world who has ever felt what I feel? Yeah, I'm broken and defective, and it's a problem. Maybe she could sense that I was broken and defective, and they used that against me. Mm-hmm. I've been a freaking idiot, and yeah. yeah, her behavior at the last didn't make sense. But maybe she took pity on me, you know. Yeah. So, you know, I think he—that's another reason why he's so quick to believe the worst because he's not supposed to have these feelings in his yeah. world, and he took a major risk by acknowledging these like it seems like he's Mm -hmm. not taking that risk because he's able to do it whereas eva is not Mm -hmm. um but he knows full well how risky this is just to him you know ari's a bit of an adrenaline junkie like in a a way that eva isn't you know Mm -hmm. um this kind of was brought to her doorstep and then she just kicks ass at it because that is really her nature like but you know, he is an adrenaline junkie and he loves the rush. And so, you know, when you fall in love, you've got like all those dopamine things going on and like all that stuff. Like yeah. he loves the feeling. He loves the feeling of falling. He loves every bit of it, but he's good and well aware that yeah. this is forbidden and not okay. And the better it feels, the more aware he is of how forbidden it is. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, there's a part of him that's like, 
oof, this is really wrong, but I love it. But this is really wrong, you know. And see, that's what I loved about him. I was like, I love that he knows how risky this is, but he's brave enough to just go for it anyways. Like that's God, so sexy, frankly. Yeah, he was. <laughs> but honestly, I think in that moment also, I mean, like you said, Emily, he also kind of is thinking maybe there is something wrong with me because he found out about mm-hmm. his parentage and you yeah. know so there's that aspect and there's that also element. the fact that he's been like in love with her for like seven years and so he's like maybe I am stupid maybe she was playing me burst into tears thinking he about has all of again. these like pent-up feelings but he's like I mean she probably just even if she did like me it was only for like the last couple months or whatever yeah so I see where he is coming yeah, from that's true for sure. well he's yeah and I mean he's just had his whole like belief system rocked like on like to the core even about like who he is and where he's from yeah so he's yeah I mean that may I totally see why he believes it it just like breaks my heart which I know is the whole yeah. point yeah so I'm just like sad poor Ari and then like to go and find out what happened to his mom and like all that stuff Oh, it's like Ari, the no good, terrible, horrible, very bad day. It really is. It is sweet Ari. He was like, my girlfriend hates me and my mom is dead. Now I can't go home. (laughs) It was terrible. Everything's wrong. I've lost so many of my weapons, too. That also sucks. I love that. That's so sucks. True. (sighs) My mentor is mean to me. (laughs) My mentor is mean to me. My clothes are all dirty. Now I'm going to have to go live somewhere else. My mom got exploded. (laughs) Love me. Uh, that broke my heart that they didn't even get to talk to each other oh uh, that was so sad i know you did a good job of you just did killing me right then <laughs> um, you have you get like a whole um short story with her you know um, in the collection mm-hmm. and so i had so much fun writing that like knowing what fate was waiting for her down the road. <laughs> I am the puppeteer. It was, it was, yes, oh God, yes. All these puppet master writers. I am not. <laughs> I, I love it. I co-host another podcast about writing called the Scripturian Society. And my co-host on that one, Carissa Harlow, is she's got that same like puppeteer energy. She's like, I love knowing that I have to write a torture scene. And I'm like, <laughs> I can't torture my character. <laughs> it's so hard to do bad things to your characters. I, one of my writing partners, like, so she recently wrote this um, this novel, right? And I, you know, I was a critique partner on it. So I'm reading it and I'm like, okay, like the guy started out like in dire circumstances and that wasn't so great. But as it went on, like, oh my God, the things that befell him. And I'm like, wait, what, he what? No, 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 he already had these 72.1 problems. Now he has 107, like, <laughs> how? Like, can't, can't anything go okay? Not anything? And she's like, where would the fun be in that? I'm like, but give the guy a break. That is exactly Carissa's is so approach funny. to writing. She's like, their life sucks in every possible way. I bet I can make it suck in even more ways. And I'm just like, yeah, it's my friend. Mm. I just want someone to be happy for like a minute. Yeah, that's, that's how Lisa is. And she's always just like, hey, 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 hey. yes, the joy, the joy in it. Yeah, so I, always have to, I always have to fight to make things worse for my characters. Like, yeah. I'm good at making it happen within the romantic arc because I think like that's where my writing very naturally lends itself to is writing like mm-hmm. the romance arc. So that's no problem. But because I know it's going to be ultimately, ho- hopefully, okay, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the <laughs> other stuff, I'm like, but they have all these other problems. Do I have yeah. to write more? Does it have to be that bad? But yeah, <laughs> it takes such a physical toll to write those parts that like I was just the other day I was writing a very dramatic scene and then I was like, well, I am now thoroughly actually depressed for the rest of my day so, like, I don't know how she does it all the time because I'm like I would just walk around just 
just crushed all day. Yeah. Well, the other thing too is like I wrote the seven sins, right? And so I have to write these action scenes. I've told you how mm. uncoordinated I am, right? So I'm writing <laughs> action scenes and I'm researching it and they're swooping and they're jumping and they're swiping and they're stabbing and they're leaping and they're tumbling. And then I get to the end of it. I'm like, wow, that was quite a workout. And then I like look at my step count and I'm like, one step. Like I've gone, <laughs> I've done nothing. I'm like, well, how is it possible? Like I feel like I just single-handedly defeated 30 Bellators, but yeah. <laughs> I really just like had a sip of coffee. Like that yeah, it's it. amazing. Yeah. Can oh, I just God. say the chase scene at the end was riveting. I oh, loved that part. Um, oh, it was God. very it like was dramatic justice. and <laughs> yeah, very well done. Because I feel like every time I try to write action scenes, I'm like, this is not going well. <laughs> it's I, not my forte. So I, I thought it was very, very good. I'm obsessed with action scenes and I'm convinced that I don't write them very well, which breaks my heart. But I am obsessed with action scenes. And every <laughs> action scene in this book was so well done. I was like, yeah. this is exactly filling my need right now. Yes. <laughs> well, the second book, um, there is like in the very first, in the very beginning, like a very super intense action scene. And when I was like researching it, I was talking to my boyfriend who's far more action-y in his brain, not in reality, but in his brain than I am. <laughs> and I, I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Like, I just want to get to the good stuff when the, the characters are bantering and kissing. And he's like, yeah, but you got to have this action scene. I'm like, wah, wah, wah. And so <laughs> I, we're like talking, like, how can I make it work? And he was like, okay, well, like, what's that Greek battle, you know, where they're like, up in the mountains and there's like a bottleneck and so everyone who comes in to fight them like gets picked off i was like thermopylae that and he's like yeah that like what if you use that and i was like oh they are in a mountainous area i could do that and so like it was kind of a cool thing because i was like all right that makes sense because that helps yeah Ari is able to make these suggestions because they study like the art of war and they study ancient battle tactics and all this stuff so like when i was writing the battle scenes like i would go back and I'd read about like the Spartans and I'd read about like mm-hmm. my son is a third degree black belt. And so that's helpful because we have like a huge collection wow. of swords and various things. And so like, I, I would be like, okay, how would you hold the sword? What would you do? Blah, 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 blah. blah. And he could tell me. And so that was like kind of a useful thing. Um, and so there was like a little like amusing bit of like acting out of these scenes in very fun <laughs> way. Um, but yeah, like they're, they're not, they're not where I naturally go. Um, and they're really hard for me to write. But sometimes I think the scenes that are hardest for us to write can sometimes turn out being the best scenes because we put so much effort into making sure that they're really good. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. That's yeah. so cool that you're able to like use like the that's... real yeah battles and stuff that you knew about or like yeah. draw, draw from your family this That's is cool. giving me ideas because sometimes it's like it's the frame of the scene like of the action scene that i'm like how how but if, i guess that's like a good idea you can like go use like an existing like or that already happened like battle or even like action moment and use it as like a framework to like build into which is Absolutely. nice because it just gives you some like some direction <laughs> For the scene. Yeah. Well, you can, yeah. and you can be like, okay, so Battle of Thermopylae, obviously, like a really, really long time ago, right? So, why not, if it was successful, would people not in the future who are trying to come up with like tactics and strategies who are in similar <laughs> terrain, like use the same thing? So, yeah, I mean, I when I was writing that same scene that has like the um, Battle of Thermopylae vibes in it, I had to um, also think about like how would people create traps in the woods? So, I was like, okay. What if I studied some of the traps that were used in the Vietnam War, right? Using only 
the jungle or branches or things that are around you because you don't have other stuff that you can bring in. And so that's what I did. I studied like the way all of those traps were constructed using components of nature and then built them into, you know, that scene and sort of layered it with like what was really going on, like specifically yeah. my character. So yeah, it was kind of a fun thing to do. That is fun. That's awesome. Well, what was your favorite part to write of this book? Um, so it's interesting. So like now I've like, skipped a couple books ahead so I can like tell you my favorite part of Siege really easily but let me go back to Sword I'm thinking 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 um I think one of my favorite parts of Sword to write was the part where you know Eva she's made her way out of the um you know she's been thrown over the falls she got I loved this scene (laughs) right and so she like for those of you who haven't read it so she's been it's um gets inducted into the Bellatorum, which is on the back cover copy. So I'm not spoiling for anybody. And, you know, she gets kidnapped in the middle of the night, right? Like uh-huh. to undergo her trials, right? And she's pissed off in the first place. Like everybody else the night before they're choosing, they take like, you know, sleeping pills that are passed around, but she doesn't. She doesn't, mm-hmm. she pretends to take them, but she doesn't because she wants to be aware and alert, right? So yeah. she's awake and all her life, she's kind of seen weird things, weird shadows, weird whatever. She's lying awake and she sees these shadows creep across the wall. And she's like, oh, really? Tonight, of all nights, really? And then one of them <laughs> separates from the wall and comes towards her. And she's like, oh, this is new. Great. Full on hallucinations that now approach me. So thrilled. Yes. And then she realizes that they're real people. Mm-hmm. And not only are they real people, but they are in her dorm room and they're coming straight for her. And then they grab her. And she gets completely freaked out, right? And so this, for me, I like writing that part of the scene because it's the first time that she realizes that there's more to herself than mm-hmm. what she might have realized. It's also the first time that she and Ari, other than their little conversation, like in the cafeteria, they actually confront each other. So you get to see their vibe, yeah. right? So I, I love that, that little piece. And so you get to see her sort of come to terms with what's going to befall her. And then subsequent to that, after she's climbed out of the water and she gets to the top of this mountain after she's knocked out this like dumb Bellator and she's like, you know, all the way up. (laughs) And you see Ari's pride like in full effect where she gets mad at him. He snarks straight back at her and you know, he, she makes him mad. He's so easy to rile. I love it. (laughs) He's so easy to rile and he's even more easy to rile because he thinks he has to conceal his feelings. He knows he has to conceal it. You know, so he's very careful to treat her with the opposite of anything you know resembling kindness and for Ari like any feelings that he has that he can't acknowledge he basically buries under sarcasm and snark don't matter mm-hmm. what it is angry snark sad snark love you snark want to shag you in the leaves snark like <laughs> that's him so you know she runs he follows and you see her like both horrified by how fast she can run but also embracing it because it might save her and then you get to see, it's just the two of them alone for the first time ever in their lives. And you get to see that dynamic where they're constantly in that little fight for who's gonna be the dominant person until the point where she pulls that knife on him and then ultimately puts that other Bellator in his place. So I really liked writing this that scene, I think because it was such a great setup for me for what their relationship is gonna be like. Mm-hmm. And also because, you know, both of them are wrestling with things that make no sense to them and that they want to hide her with her abilities that she thinks if anyone knows what they are, they're going to label her as a Bellator. And now they have, and why is this? And what does that pink pill have to do with it? And this is not who she wants to be. In fact, this is the opposite of who she wants to be. This is the person she most dreaded becoming. 
and him knowing he has to conceal these feelings that he has for her at every cost but now he's forced into this close proximity with her and then he discovers that she's going to be his apprentice so now what the hell is he going to do you know and so i love that scene because like i told you i'm drawn to these emotional extremes and that like brings all of that to a fever pitch to kind of set the stage for the second act of the book where she finds herself trying to make herself at home in the bellatorium and reconcile the fact that her worst nightmares are coming true yeah god i love it that, that actually might have been like my whole my favorite scene it was too. my I favorite loved, scene too so i loved the trials like it was so good it had everything that i love it had action it had like super snark it had like some like romantic tension it had the characters mm-hmm. that i love so deeply and you're oh like figuring god. more stuff out about like eva's abilities and like yeah. the world oh my god what is the line the scourge of shirts and pants everywhere so, <laughs> so annoyed he's like you know he wants to he's just trying to disparage her in any way because like he's so impressed by her yeah but if he shows this he's in big trouble so i like that and my second favorite scene is the scene where it's like they've held hands at black falls which is like such a good <gasps> thing to do you know so i loved writing that scene as well as the follow-up to it right where mm-hmm. you know he feels like they kind of you know he's free so freaked out she's staring at him and finally he's like why are you looking at me don't you have better things to do like if you can't like figure out like dude you started this yeah and he's just like so like freaked that he's like if you cannot show any more skill than what you showed fighting me yesterday then like I'm not going to be so gentle next time. So why are you looking at me? Get out of here and go train. And she does and accomplishes (laughs) amazing things, you know, and into the midst of this comes this like incredible tension, which ends up culminating in that scene in the woods between them and the rain. Right. And I (sighs) love writing that scene in between like in the woods and the rain. So that was another one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. I think it was mostly one of my favorites because of we we know everything that led up to it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We know like how much tension's been between them. We know now she's using this weird ability to find them. We know his arrogance thinking that there's no way she can find. And, you know, he's trying to get beyond his feelings for her by using what he sees as his superior skills. He's like, I'll put her in her place and then I'll stop feeling this way and she will stop mouthing off to me. Yeah. But that's not what happens at all. No. Like on the ground at her mercy, right? So I I really liked writing that scene too. Yeah, that was great. Such, possibly my favorite like romantic scene in any book ever. I just, any, first of all, romance scenes in the rain, Absolutely, hell yeah! It's got to be in the rain. Uh, it's got to be in the rain. They were first like on like a physical fight because they're both these like badass like people who are like that's like that's their thing. Oh yeah. my god, yes! I just everything. <laughs> I was so excited about that. Scene. Yeah, we're fangirling a little bit. Absolutely, <laughs> I'm so glad that you liked it. Like that scene has been in the not like that novel has undergone so many changes and iterations but that scene never left it's been there since the beginning nice i don't write in order like sometimes i do but sometimes i'll just write scenes that occur to me and so that scene was like and i think of them as like they're like little gems right and they're just like floating out there waiting for like a bracelet to be set in like in the right order and that scene was just like a little gem just like and i just have it there and i'd be like okay is it time for you yet no time for you yet (laughs) it's time for you now it's your time to sign here you go polishing you up boop and I was so happy to finally like see it in action. I was like, yeah, there you go. Yeah, so it was it. perfect. Um, and on that note, we usually ask about like writing process. Are you an outliner or are you just like a whatever, whatever comes when it comes type thing? 
Um, so that's an interesting story. Um, so when I started writing, I was very much what we call a pantser, meaning you fly by the seat of your pants, right? <laughs> um, when you write, like, I, I just was like, okay, I have an idea. This is like when I wrote the memory thief, like back in the back in the day, right? Like, I have an idea. I kind of know who my characters are. I would have like a like a sometimes it would be like a single line would appear in my brain or an mm-hmm. image or whatever, and then I would write and. When I wrote The Memory Thief that way, what I discovered was that I ended up with a lot of scenes that accomplished the same thing repetitively, but just in different situations, right? Like the same mm-hmm. emotional arc was happening in this scene that was in the kitchen or it was in the bathroom but it, or in the grocery store. It's the same scene, right? The characters weren't moving forward emotionally. And I was like, okay, well, that's a problem. And I went sort of behind and did all of this trimming and cutting with the help of my mentor at the time and like all this stuff, getting it into fighting shape, right? And then The Memory Thief was successful and I wrote a second book. And the second book is not The Dreamkeeper's Daughter, which is my second book that came out. It was called The Future Behind Me. And when I finished it using the same way that I just described of writing, um, I had this thing. It was 600 pages long. It could have been used as like a doorstop or <laughs> or maybe like a weapon to drop on the foot of somebody you were really mad at or (laughs) was an engaging, compelling book. Right. And that led me to this point where I used to get a lot of feedback on my writing that was like, well, you know, when I would get rejections and it would be, this is really well written, but, and in the, but it was always a different, but, but it meant the same thing. And it all boiled down to the fact ultimately that that characters' goals, wants, and needs weren't clear enough, and that subsequently the narrative structure and plot wasn't sufficiently compelling. Mm-hmm. And But yet, the writing apparently was so strong. And this was really frustrating for me because I would get this feedback again and again and again, and I didn't know how to fix it. And then finally, I read Save the Cat Writes a Novel, which is based on Blake Snyder's screenwriting Bible, Save the Cat, but it's adapted mm-hmm. from that Jessica Brody, I think is the author, don't quote me, but I think it's Jessica Brody. I read that and there's so many different outlining methods you can use. So I'm not saying everyone should use Save the Cat, but what I do think, and I teach my students this, I think whether or not you outline, whether or not you plot, this particular technique hands down has made the biggest difference in my writing. Um, and I have my students do it always. And what I do is, and it came from that book, right? Doing it in this way, but it's like, I take my main characters before I start writing now and I do a character questionnaire. So ask myself these questions. What do they want when this novel starts? Why do they want this thing? Why is this thing so important to them? Why is this want, which is going to have to be strong enough to carry them through the whole book, what they want? There's got to be a reason. It can't be an arbitrary want. Then I think, okay, so what will happen if they don't get what they want this thing that this is so important to them like what that's your stakes right for this character it's got to be something life-changing crushing you know diminishing it's got to be so vital that they would do anything to fight for this thing that they want right and then i say okay so what's the obstacle what's in the way of them getting what they want what's in their way right and then the next thing once i figure that out i ask myself okay what is my character's essential wound? Like, is it that sometimes known as their deepest flaw, right? Is it Mm -hmm. that they can't get close enough to anyone that they push everybody in their life away the moment they get close enough. So like 
you know, with Ari, his biggest flaw is his pride, right? Sometimes he will sacrifice anything and everything because he is not going to give up his pride. So things come out of his mouth. And the next thing you know, he's put himself in these terrible, awful situations, all because he couldn't shut up and swallow it down for one second. <laughs> you know? um, that's one of his biggest flaws. So like, why is that his biggest flaw? Well, he's got a good reason for that. You know, that's his biggest mm -hmm. flaw because back in the day when he would express his emotions and care about other people, he got tremendously punished for it. And so as a result, he built up his snark and his pride as a self-defense mechanism because you scratch the surface of that pride and beneath that is a deeply emotional person who would do anything to hide that, right? So then I asked myself like that question, okay, so what happened in my character's life to cause this, right? And then what does my character need to learn by the end of the novel? And whatever it is, it's the opposite of their flaw, right? Like whatever they need to learn, it's only when you truly give up, you know, your pride and you are willing to genuinely express your emotions and who you are and you're willing to make yourself vulnerable, can you become the best version of yourself, right? So that's just his journey. I mean, every character is different. So before I write now, that's what I do. I ask myself those questions for, for both my main characters and my antagonist, if I have one, right? Because I tend to write something with strong romantic streaks. So you know, that's what's going to be the case, right? And then whoever's against them, right? Because without a good antagonist, you really have no book, right? Um, and so I do that. And then I really start to think about some of the beats in Save the Cat. And that story structure works for me, right? And mm -hmm. what I've discovered is like, once you figure out all that stuff about your characters that I just blathered on about, like once you figure that out, there's only one or two ways that your plot can really go. Like your plot unfolds so naturally from understanding those things about your characters. And when you get to the middle of your book and it's the mucky, messy middle and your book starts to flounder, it's usually because you're not being true to those things for your characters that you've set up. Mm. So mm -hmm. now when I write, like I used to feel like I didn't want to do any, first of all, I didn't really know what work to do in the beginning because I came out of kind of nowhere, not out of a program, not out of anything. But second of all, I didn't want to do any of this stuff. I just wanted to write. Doing this stuff sounded so boring. Like, it sounded <laughs> like writing a book report. Like, why would I want to do that? But yeah. what I discovered, you know, a lot of people have said to me with The Seven Sins, um, both of the books that are out, you guys have read the first one, but the second one too, this feedback that I've got is this is really tightly plotted. You know, so much yeah. happens in a very short book. And that is because I wrote those books that way. Mm. And the difference between those books and my process to begin with it's so dramatic to me and it means that I do far less rewriting there's far less coming in in the back end um and sometimes I still and the other thing that I'll do is I'll so I, I do the character questionnaire I do the save the cat kind of setup outline and then taking the save the cat outline I will set up my document and I'll write little three-line summaries for each chapter like this is what's happening oh, here that's smart. yeah and it's based on first the character questionnaire and then the save the cat structure, which happens to work for me. There's all kinds of structures. Um, and then, you know, like if it's an action scene that I know is next from looking at that outline, and I don't want to write it because action scenes are hard for me, man, and I don't want to <laughs> do it. But yeah. I'm like, but there's a kissing scene next and I can do that. But it's okay. I can go write the kissing scene because I know that writing the kissing scene isn't just like the shiny new toy, froggy, shiny distraction, you know? It's like, <laughs> It's next. It's on my outline. So it's like, okay, you know what, Emily? Cool. 
you go and you write your happy little kissing scene and maybe some little part of your brain will be over here thinking about the fight scene. <laughs> and then when you go back and write the fight scene, you can do it. So it allows me to still embrace my happy way of writing, which is my, let me create this gem, let me create this gem, because I've created sort of this overall structure of the bracelet. And I know the size of the wrist and I know in what order the gems are gonna go. And so if mm -hmm. I wanna like leave an open hole over here for the setting and just go over here and do this other one, I can do that without feeling like I've gone totally off track. And honestly, right. like it's been world changing for me in terms of my writing and has really, I understand now why those other books didn't work. I understand now why the books that worked in the end didn't work in the first place. So for me, it, it has saved me so much time, energy, and stress to do that work up front. And it still allows for change. It's not like I adhere to that. And I'm like, nope, said I was going to do that. Never changing it. Like, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So that is, that's the process that I use now um, with some variations. And it works really well for me. That is awesome. That's like really great process. Yeah. yeah and great yeah. like advice. I've, oh, I'm ge I'm generally a pantser because I've tried, I've tried <laughs> like three different types of outlining and it's just nothing works for me, but I, I feel like I'm going to give this a shot because it's so hard. I, I, I feel like one of my big issues is not having like a super tight plot and the plot was so tight in this book. Yes. Um, I, I, this is a great method of outlining and writing. Yeah, because well, before you even are, said that, I was thinking that too. It's very tight. It like, is, yeah. yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, it, it just, it gives you freedom. Like, I'm not, like all these people who are like, you know, I have friends who like, they color code and they have like boards with post-its and I'm like, oh my God, who has the time? Like, I admire you so much and also no. Mm -hmm. um, and so for <laughs> yeah. me, like, this works well because it's so flexible, right? Like you mm -hmm. might, you're not an outliner, you could be like, okay. Like, I do think it's, pretty non-negotiable to understand your character's goals, wants, needs, obstacles, blah, blah. But that's different. Like that's not outlining. That's just you yeah. sitting down and having like coffee with your character or whiskey with your character or whatever in your head <laughs> and being, yeah. And being like, okay, let me understand you. And then mm -hmm. you put those against each other and you can see how your two main characters play off each other. So like, you know, if you take that movie, what is it? You got mail or whatever. Isn't that <gasps> yes. It? You know that movie? So it's like perfect. So you have this woman, she's owned her, I hope I've got the right Meg Ryan Hemings movie. Like she, it's the one with the bookstores, right? You got uh -huh. yeah. yeah. Right. So, you know, you have this woman, like her mom died. So her mom owned this bookstore. So it's her dream to keep this bookstore going, not just because she loves books, but because she loves her mom and she wants to keep mm -hmm. her mom's memory alive. And that's all she wants in the world. And then this dude comes to town and he's opening FOX, Fox Books, you know? And then like, it's the big conglomerate. And what does he want? You know, he wants to build on his own family's success, to build a legacy for his family. I can't remember why or how he inherited this, but so right away, you know that what your two main characters want, even if you know nothing else about your plot, if you're looking at the wants and needs, you know from the beginning that this is gonna be this tremendous point of tension. She wants to make this little indie bookstore survive because it keeps her mom's memory alive and he's motivated by money, she thinks. And that's why he wants to bring this whole thing in. She's a books purist, he's a cash whatever. And then you have the situation where they're both in other relationships, but both dissatisfied and looking for love. They find each other, but they're mortal enemies, right? So <laughs> what will they do? So if you don't outline at all, but all you have is your story idea, and you know those things about your characters, you can fill out that goals, wants, needs, and you put them next to each other, and then you see how do these things play off each other, and you don't even have to outline your own plot if that your whole plot if that's not your jam. There's only one way that can go. 
Yeah. Right? You're right. This and I love that you brought up You've Got Mail. One of my favorites. Yeah, I use it when I teach sometimes. And I also use the Hunger Games because I feel like um, those are two incredibly different creative products, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the same. Like, you know so clearly what Katniss wants. And even when you're infuriated with her, you understand why she's making those choices, right? Yes. So it's so amazingly tightly plotted. And like, You've Got Mail... Yeah, I mean, some people might say it's predictable, but so what? Like, we understand exactly what each character wants, why they're doing what they're doing, and the plot is driven in the way it's driven because of the character's goals, wants, and needs. There's only one way it can go. So understanding that, for me, has been so helpful as a a writer, and it's probably, like, the single most helpful tool that I've used. And instead of being annoying and, like, I just want to write, ugh, you know, it's been (laughs) Okay, but I'm getting to know my characters better. So it makes me a better writer when I sit down to write about them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think your process sounds like actually achievable versus like I have now given myself a whole other job that's essentially the same as writing the whole book, which is like, I think that's really more how uh, Carissa writes. Carissa's like, she's got the posters and the walls and like maps and maps and maps and like so much outline work that I'm like, you have put more work into your outlining (laughs) process than I've ever put into a single novel. So, and that just overwhelms me, but, but this process actually sounds like it could save you time in the long run, Yeah, which is amazing. Well, it does. And what I like about it too, is like, I, like I taught this workshop and it's called plot plus character equals story. Um, and so, you know, you, what I like about this process is, is that it's character driven because like, we don't read just to find out what happens. We need mm-hmm. to find out what happens to the characters we love or hate or fear or whatever we read to discover the plot because of that emotional connection. Otherwise we DNF it and just put it away and that's the end of that, right? So for me, I love this because I think if you are an outliner in a really, really detailed way, you run the risk of getting so involved with the plot that you forget about the people, the characters that caused you to want to write the plot in the first place. And they're just like little chess pieces that you're moving around, you know? Whereas this, for me, you start with the people, you start with the heart of the story, right? Yeah. And so you have like the characters and then when you add the plot in, it's clear that it can only go this way and now you have your story. So that's that's what I love about it because at every turn, it's driven by the, the characters and people that made me so excited to write in the first place. Yeah. Right. Well, so you mentioned that you're, is it, is it the last book in this series, in the Sword series that's coming out in the Seven Sun series? In the summer, summer 2022. This, so summer 2022 and it, so it, it will be a trilogy and that'll It'll be, be the last one? That's okay. it. So yeah, right now we have the first two books out. We have the novella, which is free, which is Sacrifice of the Seven Sins. It's a prequel novella from Ari's perspective, um, where, where you get to see all that stuff. Like I was telling you, why is he, you know, why are you the way that you are? That's right, right, you, right. You get to see that right there. Yeah. Um, so I loved writing that and it introduces someone that I adore. Um, and then there's a short story collection, which is ebook only. Sacrifice is also ebook only. Um, and there's a short story collection that's ebook only called Shadows of the Seven Sins. Um, so, and then there will be the third book next summer. So it's it's basically like five five books that are part of it. The main trilogy, which is still missing the one book that's next summer, and mm-hmm. then the um, prequel novella and the short story collection. Awesome! awesome. Woohoo! Yeah, I'm very excited. I me too. This. I'm all in. The so. Seven Sins universe. Yeah, that's. I love. I love that you're like building out a full universe. That's that's so fun because I know people want to get involved. 
And on that note, how can people get involved? Like, can they follow you on social media or what can people do to get as involved with the with the Seven Sins universe as possible? Um, well, so there's lots of different things you can do. Um, one thing, um, you can follow me. Uh, I'm not very active on Twitter because it feels like an endless cocktail party and I don't really like other human beings. So Twitter kind <laughs> of like freaks me out, but I'm um, at um, Emily A. Collin on Twitter. If you message me, I will see it. Um, but I'm not, th- I'm more of like a lurker. Um, I'm on Instagram, <laughs> which I'm um, Emily underscore Colin, C-O-L-I-N. And then my um, website, um, which is emilycollin.com. Um, and so any of those places um, you can find me. Um, I, I love when people take pictures of my books in the wild. I love um, when um, people Instagram my books in any way. Um, I have like little fun quote cards that are up on my website, which I adore where I like stole little quotes from the book and put them up there. Um, I also, um, I made with the help of my good friend, Sarah Anderson, um, these two book trailers, um, both for Sword and for Siege, and they're both up on my website. Um, so you can see them and also on my website. So if you go on my website, like under, um, there's like the little menus that go across. Um, and then there's books and my seven sins um, series has a whole page, right? Mm-hmm. So both trailers are on there as well as um, pictures of um, the characters um, from each book. So <gasps> okay, yes. I know exactly what I'm doing after this. Let's do it. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's awesome. That's, yeah, so that's definitely a way that um, you can dive in. And then Nerdy Book Box in August did a um, themed book box for, for the series, which was great. And I think, I think you can still order individual book boxes if they have any left. Oh my God. It was really fun because I got to help curate that. Um, and um, I got to do like, so I, 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 we decided we would do like a, a sin themed box. It's really great. So I got to like choose like a handmade soap for this little company that symbolized lust and like a chocolate caramel biscotti that was gluttony and all these other things. It was so great to do. So it was like one of my dreams to have like, one of my books in a book box. So that was really oh an amazing thing for me. Um, and so I ordered one and it arrived. I was like, I can't believe this is really happening. Um, but yeah, it was an this indie book so box. Exciting. Yeah, it was that really is fun. so cool. Oh my gosh, I'm totally gonna get one. I know. I'm like, okay, if they still I, have I, them. I'm getting one. That is so cool. Congrats, yeah. that's so awesome. Yeah, congratulations. <laughs> it's yeah. Absolutely, and I love I love meeting with book clubs. I um, I love doing stuff like this, and I love teaching. So you know, that's something too, is, you know, if um, anyone is like, oh, like, I want to know more about any of those things, I'm always happy to share. It is um, so much fun for me to do stuff like this and to talk about writing. And like, if I can help anybody from falling down the rabbit holes, I fell down and like, also share anything that's helpful creatively. I just love doing that. So yeah, we've really appreciated having you on. This has been awesome. We yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Oh and just sharing your knowledge and your cool stories. And yeah. Yeah. For real. This is this has been such a fun episode and such a fun book. Yeah. God, we love loved it. So, so thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Well, if you read any of the other stuff or the short stories or, or the second book, you'll have to let me know what you think and see who you think of the short stories are my three favorite characters. Oh, absolutely. Okay. I'll message you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, um, for all of our listeners out there, thank you guys for joining us as always. We will see you next week. Um, and until then, everybody, keep your teacups full. Your pinkies high. And your book club. Pretentious. <laughs> Love it.